Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Ronnie Bannock. She's America's integrative eye doctor. She's a board-certified ophthalmologist and fellowship-trained neuro-ophthalmologist with additional certifications in functional integrative medicine. Today, we dove deep into the evolution of migraines, discussing ways that genetics as well as epigenetics play a role in whether or not we develop this neurologic headache the role of nutrition and eye health, and specifically what nutrients are key to healthy eyes throughout our lifetime, how HRT can play a role in eye health, especially with dry eyes, the role of sunlight in chronobiology, the impact of blue light therapy, and what are the best ways to protect our vision with age. I know you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Well, Dr. Ronnie, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, largely because you have such a broad area of expertise in ophthalmology, neuro-ophthalmology, and I just think you have so much helpful information that I know women of the everyday wellness community are really looking for. I got a lot of really great kind of broad questions. So welcome. It's so nice to have you joining me this morning. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm very, very excited to chat with you today. Yeah. And I thought kind of a a less common topic that we have explored on the podcast is talking about migraines. It's certainly something that there's a familial aspect of it. My father suffered from migraines. I have suffered intermittently with migraines throughout my lifetime, my oldest son. And so I would love to kind of explore like what exactly do migraines represent how can they present? Because as you mentioned, as before we started recording, they can present differently for everyone. Not everyone has migraine with an aura, which is what I always started with. That's how I knew I had a migraine coming. And then that was usually, you know, precipitated with, oh crap, now I need to go figure out, you know, do I need more hydration? Do I need to grab my medication? And so let's talk about how migraines evolve and how they change, especially with age, because I was always told, oh, when you get older, they'll go away. That hasn't really been the case. And so I think in many ways, people are curious about the evolution of migraines, different types of symptoms. How do we address them proactively? Yes, absolutely. Well, so first of all, migraine is one of my favorite topics, partly because I'm a migraine sufferer as well. And also being a neuro-ophthalmologist, I see a tremendous amount of migraine in my practice. I would say at least 50% of people who are coming to see me have some shape or form of migraine. And that's why they seek me out. So it's very common. And so I think the first thing to address is what is it exactly? So it's not just a headache. I think that's a lot of people just equate, oh, migraine, it's a bad headache. It's well beyond a headache because it's actually, it's a neurologic condition. And in this neurologic condition, there are changes in blood vessel, blood flow to the brain. There are electrical changes that happen. 
And other organ systems get involved also. So it's not just your brain that can be involved with pain, but also your eyes. You can get visual symptoms. Sometimes people have uh, GI symptoms, especially children. We were talking earlier about your migraines when you were younger may have been different than what they are now. And oftentimes uh, children will start out having gastrointestinal migraine where they have nausea, vomiting, bloating, diarrhea, loose stools. So there are many manifestations of migraine. Sometimes there are sympathetic types of side effects, like people may feel flush, they may feel like their heart's racing, they have palpitations, this is all migraine. And so it's not just a headache. And there are actually over 40 symptoms that can come along with migraine. Now, why it happens, we don't know, there certainly is a familial component about 50% of people will have a relative with migraine. And actually, if you're a parent with migraine, there's a 50% chance that your child will have migraine. If both parents have migraine, then there's a 75% chance that the child will have migraine. So it has a high penetrance. And so what I'll say about the hereditary part of it is that there are many genes associated with migraines. It's not just a single gene, a single SNP that is associated with migraine. There is over 50 identified genetic risks. Just because you may have a genetic risk for migraine does not mean that you will have migraine. So it's not inevitable that it will happen to you. And there are so many other factors, those epigenetic factors, those lifestyle factors that come into play, whether someone manifests symptoms or not. So again, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh my God, I have migraine, my child's going to have migraine, not necessarily, but there are so many things people can do to ward them off or to prevent them or decrease their frequency and severity. And we can talk about what some of those things are. And the last thing I want to address is your point about migraines evolving over the course of one's life. Because I think, especially as a woman with migraine, my migraine has certainly changed character over the years. So we can go into that a little bit if you'd like. No, I would love to, because I know for me, I kind of assumed, you know, all my neurologist friends were like, oh, you won't get any migraines when you're in perimenopause. They're going to go away. And then I had ophthalmology friends that said, oh no, you'll actually probably get an increase in migraine symptoms as you transition into perimenopause, and then they'll probably go away. Well, I'm now officially in menopause and I can tell you they did not increase in frequency for me, but what did happen was they're much more magnified. I think that the one thing I've learned, my two big triggers are stress. I mean, no one lives a stress-free lifestyle and dehydration. And those two things, if they're put together and I'm not taking care, it's usually a check-in. It's my body's way of saying, hey, Mm -hmm. you think you're taking good care of yourself and you're not, but what has been your clinical experience and or what is in the research that suggests the kind of transition of middle age and women? Do you see increases in symptoms, exacerbations? What is the typical pattern? And again, there's a lot of bioindividuality that plays into this, but what has been the typical pattern that you have seen clinically? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll talk about women specifically because we are unique in our hormonal changes that happen during life. So usually migraines begin earlier in life, whether it's late teenage years or young adulthood, that's usually when most women will first have their or experience their first migraine. And it may be with or without aura. Aura is basically a symptom. It could be a visual symptom like flashing lights. Sometimes there's another symptom, for example, trouble speaking trying to get the words out, but you don't really know how to say or slurred speech. Sometimes people will even have numbness or tingling of part of their body, which can be quite frightening. So that obviously needs to get worked up, but that's the type of aura that people can experience with migraine. And sometimes they just have the aura without migraine. So typically that occurs during young adulthood, 20s, 30s, 
And then, and also I just want to talk about the hormonal component. So when women are menstruating, sometimes they will have menstrual migraine, which is basically a phenomenon happening because during our menstrual cycle, usually the estrogen builds up, progesterone builds up into a really, to a really high point. And then right before menses begins, it suddenly drops. And it's that sudden change in the hormone level that causes, that triggers migraine. And so along the same line, whenever there are hormonal changes, that is when people may be predisposed to migraine. So during perimenopause, when there's fluctuating estrogen levels, progesterone levels, that is a big trigger for many people. So it actually may get worse during that time. And personally, I can tell you that I began with migraine in my 20s, and I just had migraine maybe twice a year. So it was very manageable. But once I get into perimenopause, that was a really difficult time for me because I had really frequent migraine with aura. And then eventually it got to be almost every day that I had a migraine. So it was really, really a vast difference in terms of my severity and frequency of symptoms. Then into menopause, as you said, most people will tell you, most providers will tell you things get better, but they really only get better once your body gets used to the change in your hormone level. So even though you may be in menopause, you know, a year or two into menopause, you're, you think that, okay, you're, my estrogen is low, my progesterone is low, I probably won't get as many migraines, but your body still has to readjust. The same as, you know, we get hot flashes too. And you would think that, okay, I'm in menopause, now my hot flashes are going to go away, or I'm five or 10 years into menopause, my hot flashes are going to go away, and they don't. And it's probably because your body is not yet used to that low estrogen level. We actually have estrogen receptors in our brain, the part of the brain, which is the midbrain and the pons where we think that migraine originates from. And so there are estrogen alpha and beta receptors there. So that's one theory as to why migraines are so closely tied to hormonal changes and fluctuations. The other thing I'll mention about evolution of migraine during one's life is that it may begin as episodic, it may become more chronic, and then the headache may actually go away. And this is something that a lot of people kind of have a hard time understanding. Like it's migraine. Why am I, why aren't I getting a headache anymore? Sometimes other symptoms may predominate. So for example, especially women, and there has been a couple of papers published about this, women who are postmenopausal, they may no longer get the headache. They may no longer have the aura, but they will have a unique form of migraine called vestibular migraine. And I don't know if you've ever, Cynthia, if you've ever experienced this, but I have. It is not fun. It's basically like vertigo, where you get like the room is spinning around you, you feel really unsteady, and you just are just totally discombobulated because everything is in motion and it can last a few hours to a few days. So again, that's a type of migraine without the headache but it's called vestibular migraine. And many women will evolve into that where they don't get the typical headache, you know, nausea, vomiting, light sensitivity, they'll develop something else instead. So it's really a very complex type of condition. And everyone, as you said, bio-individuality, no two people with migraine are the same. And so you basically need to address it on an individual basis as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I have not experienced the vestibular symptoms, but I am noticing girlfriends that are at the stage of life. I'm 52 
that are starting to experience vertigo episodes. And, you know, I'm starting to read about this association with vertigo and in a low estradiol state, so low estrogen state. And maybe you should talk to your doctor about checking your hormones, or, you know, maybe it's time to talk about not being on the oral contraceptive because you probably don't need it. You may in fact be in menopause or nearly there might be time to have conversations about other things. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, Come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean, science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. Did you know that our natural ability to digest food declines with age? This has a great deal to do with our body producing fewer enzymes, which are responsible for digesting food. Fewer enzymes oftentimes means more difficulty digesting food as well as bloating and gas. And if you're over the age of 35, like so many of my listeners, your enzyme levels have already begun to decline. That's why I'm a huge fan of enzyme supplementation. And the best digestive enzyme I have ever found comes from my friends at BioOptimizers called Masszymes. Masszymes is the most complete, most potent digestive enzyme I've ever seen or experienced with over 102% more protease than the nearest competitor and 300 to 500% more per serving than most popular brands. I take Masszymes with my largest meal of the day, sometimes two, generally three, and it's made a big difference in my digestion. What makes this digestive enzyme most helpful is that it is particularly beneficial in helping to break down protein. Not properly breaking down your protein and digesting it creates a variety of problems from bloating to inflammation and beyond. Masszymes not only contains more protease, it contains 13 additional enzymes, including lipase for fat digestion, which work at every pH level from 2 to 12, in other words, at every stage of digestion. 
all of this makes Masszymes an ideal complement to any muscle building or fat loss diet. And you can try it risk-free. Their 365-day full money-back guarantee is the gold standard in the industry. And if you don't feel how Masszymes helps you upgrade your digestion and power through your food, their support team will give you a no-questions-asked refund. Go to biooptimizers.com and use code CYNTHIA10 to get 10% off your first purchase. That's www.bioptimizers.com slash Cynthia and use code CYNTHIA10 to get 10% off. You mentioned the sensitivity to light. So this photophobia, which is part of my migraine constellation. And what is going on physiologically that's driving that sensitivity to light? Because I find this really interesting. Like as I was preparing for our conversation, I was like, oh, this is so interesting. What is going on neurologically from a neuro-ophthalmology perspective? What is actually driving that sensitivity to light? Okay. So I'm going to nerd out a little bit here (laughs) with my response. So there are different types of cells in the back of the eye that capture different wavelengths of light. And one type of cell is called, now this is a tongue twister also, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cell. So IPRGC. And it's actually phenomenal that this type of cell was only discovered a couple of years ago within the past decade. We didn't even know that we had these cells, but these cells are sensitive to very specific wavelengths of light, predominantly blue wavelengths of light. So within the 400 to 480 range is when where these cells are tuned in. And so those cells, when they get stimulated by those wavelengths of light, those cells actually project to the same part of the brain where I was talking about before within the midbrain pons area where there is the trigeminal nucleus caudalis. And that trigeminal nucleus caudalis is responsible for migraine. It's really like the relay center for where everything happens with migraine, the incoming stimuli, and then the pain, the outgoing pain, efferents are all managed by this trigeminal nucleus. So those cells, those retinal ganglion cells are projecting right to that pain center. And so that's oftentimes why we have sensitivity to flashing to bright lights, but also flashing lights. Um, That's also a very common symptom in people with migraine is that any kind of strobe effect, like for example, if you're in a grocery store and you see those overhead fluorescents and one of them is kind of flickering and it's really making you uncomfortable or making you nauseous or queasy, that's because those cells are getting triggered. The same thing happens with screens. So we don't perceive this, but our screens are constantly flickering and they're flickering. They're made that way. They go on, off, on, off, on, off at a very high rate to save battery life. But when they're doing that, our eyes may not see it, but our brain can pick it up that it's constantly flickering. And that can be a trigger for some people as well when, you know, just simply being on a screen for a prolonged period of time, as many of us are, unfortunately, that can be a trigger for people's migraine and light sensitivity. So it's really interesting how intimately the visual system is connected to the brain's pathways for pain, specifically for migraine pain. It's, it's so really interesting. Street almost. Yeah. yeah, no, it was so interesting because as I was preparing for this, I was noticing, you know, thankfully I don't get migraines with any frequency, but when I do now, I will sometimes get pain kind of referred around my nose. And I kept thinking like, what could be driving that or pain across a cheek? And so it makes sense. This trigeminal nerve kind of distribution can definitely Absolutely. play a role in, in the referred pain. And I was like, oh, 
That makes sense. And actually, you know, speaking of the trigeminal system, so we have three branches of the trigeminal branch, one that goes to the forehead and the eye socket branch two that goes to the cheek and the upper jaw. And then the third branch that goes to the lower jaw. So the trigeminal system also goes to your sinuses. And a lot of people will have quote unquote sinus headaches, or they think that they're having sinus headache when it's in fact migraine. So if you look at the classification of the different types of headache syndromes, there is no such thing as a sinus headache. It's really migraine. So it's really interesting. So if you suffer, if you think you have sinus headaches, talk to your doctor and ask, could I really be having a migraine? Because the treatment is very different. And it's best that you kind of get that you get the right diagnosis so that you can be treated appropriately. Absolutely. And I think it goes without saying, because this is always the question that comes in of how do I differentiate? And this is, again, a broad question. How do I differentiate migraine pain from debilitating, unusual headache pain? Now, I'm speaking from many years working as an ER nurse where we saw a lot of very unusual presentations. And what would be some of the signs if someone were listening and they're like, okay, I have a history of migraines, or maybe I've never had a migraine, but what are some of the classic signs of headache that really are an indication that you need to have your symptoms evaluated sooner rather than later? Yeah. So migraine has very specific criteria, diagnostic criteria. And um, so usually it has to be multiple episodes and not just a single episode, but multiple episodes. Each episode has to last anywhere from four to 72 hours. So it may be a couple of hours or maybe a couple of days. In most cases, migraine is unilateral. So one-sided throbbing or pulsing, that's the typical sensation that people have less commonly like a pressure, but usually it's like a kind of with your heartbeat, almost like a pulsing sensation or a stabbing sensation. Like some of my patients come in because they feel like someone's almost stabbing a knife into their eye socket or into their head. That's how intense it can be. And also with migraine compared to other types of headaches, like for example, tension headaches, Migraine has associated symptoms, and we touched upon light sensitivity or photophobia, but also phonophobia. And this is really, really important to recognize because many people who have migraine, they just kind of want to go into a dark room, but also they don't want any sound. They want it completely quiet. They'll tell their family, turn down the TV. It's too loud. Just calm it down. It's too, too loud. So light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, nausea, and vomiting. So those are the associated symptoms, but the typical symptoms. But again, like I was talking about earlier, there are over 40 symptoms associated with migraine. So just because those are the criteria, your migraine may not fall into that nice box, that nice category. So be sure to talk it over with your doctor. And if you're suspicious, you may have migraine, or let's say you have a family member with migraine and you think you may have migraine as well, then definitely ask for a referral to a neurologist really to sort it out and be appropriately diagnosed. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, if no one needs to suffer in silence, number one, number two, make sure you're getting an appropriate diagnosis. And the thing that's been interesting to me is there's still so much misinformation about migraines. I think many people, I would say healthcare professionals included, sometimes think migraines aren't a big deal. I'll be the first person to say, because I've had a history of migraines, I'm very sympathetic when people say, I feel like I need to go in a closet, just crawl on in a ball in the closet, be away from light and sound and people and humans, because I just feel that badly. So it can be very debilitating for people. And, and I'm always oftentimes amazed at individuals that will say they'll have a migraine for like three days. I'm like, I couldn't function. (laughs) Mine's usually short lived, but that it can be very, very debilitating. Now I'd love to kind of 
pivot and talk in generalities about overall recommendations that you make to your patients about the role of nutrition and lifestyle and eye health. I think this is so important. You know, I think a lot of us make the association that carotenoids and carrots are beneficial. There's beneficial compounds in carrots, but there's so much more than that. And I know this is a particular area of interest for listeners. They kept saying like, what are the real things? Like what are the real foods and lifestyle piece that can be very beneficial to eyes, especially as we're aging. I think there's a lot of misinformation that's out there. I think people just assume they drop off a cliff in perimenopause and menopause, and they automatically get macular degeneration and glaucoma. And so I said, let's kind of start from a place of proactiveness, and then we'll kind of work towards some of the more common things you see in middle-aged women. Yeah, absolutely. So there are some changes that happen to our eyes naturally with age. And one of them is difficulty reading, which is called presbyopia. And it happens usually in one's late 40s, 50s, where you just can't see clearly and you kind of have to hold things further away from you. That's presbyopia. And ultimately, you know, many people end up needing reading glasses. So that's something normal. That's something physiologic. And yes, you can kind of push it off or there's kind of workarounds for the reading glasses. There's things that you can do. But from a nutrition and lifestyle perspective, that happens to almost all of us. And so, but then there are other things where they can happen as we get older, and these things are preventable using the power of food and using the power of uh, lifestyle modification. So I'll take, for example, dry eye, which is very, very common in the overall population, but specifically in women, particularly as they get to perimenopause, menopause. And I would say in my patient population, if I have a, a woman above the age of 50 without dry eye, she's the exception. I mean, she's really, I would say over 75% of my patients who are over 50 have dry eye, particularly women. So what's happening here? Well, there are hormonal changes, obviously, decreasing levels of estrogen, progesterone, but also testosterone. And all of that together impacts how the glands in our eyes produce oils and secrete tears. And so, yes, you can, you know, put a Band-Aid on it using you know, eye drops, like lubricating drops. You can do warm compresses. But the goal is to really get those glands functioning well and to support them in whatever way you can. So I oftentimes use, there are studies, many studies showing that nutrition is important for dry eye management. So you want to have adequate amounts of omegas in your diet, particularly omega-3s. So great sources are various types of fish, salmon, tuna, mackerel, but also there are plant-based sources as well, seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, flax seeds. And then GLA, which is an omega-6, is all also helpful. It's also been shown to be helpful for dry eye. GLA is not readily found in foods, but you can get it from a supplement. And then from a, there are a couple of other nutrients, like for example, vitamin A is important for dry eye. Zinc is important for dry eye, et cetera. But I'll also talk about, we were mentioning this earlier before we started recording about hormone replacement therapy. So there are some large studies that looked at the benefit of doing traditional hormone replacement therapy for dry eye. And those studies actually found that it was not helpful. So why it was not helpful, I can only hypothesize, you know, maybe it's because those hormones are not getting to where they need to be. So in my practice, what I've done is I've started putting some of my patients, my perimenopausal, postmenopausal patients on compounded eye drops that have hormones in them. And yes, I'm a little bit 
you know, kind of, I'm, this is not uh, mainstream by any, by any means, but, you know, I understanding things from a functional medicine perspective and integrative medicine perspective, I am, you know, kind of thinking about the root cause and where the root cause is coming from. So yes, the body's depleted of these hormones, but specifically for dry, you have to think about the eye. So why not deliver it directly to the eye? That's my thought. So that's what I do in my practice. And also, you know, some patients are on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, and sometimes that helps them as well. So it's kind of a multifaceted approach when it comes to nutrition, lifestyle, et cetera. And then there's many lifestyle things you can do for dry eye. Now, talking about some other things you mentioned earlier, macular degeneration. Unfortunately, it is one of the leading causes of blindness in the world. The good news is that it is preventable and it is preventable using the power of nutrition. So there are many large scale studies looking at different populations and what types of diets they had. And what we know is that people who have a diet rich in fresh fruits and vegetables that provide the macular carotenoids. So there are many carotenoids out in nature, but the macular carotenoids are key in the prevention of macular degeneration. And so this is what I talk about. I have a book that I released called Beyond Carrots, Best Foods for Eye Health. So I talk about the macular carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin. You may have heard of them. They're kind of hard to pronounce, but um, they're super, super important for your vision health, for prevention of macular degeneration. And not only that, they actually are also studies showing that they not only benefit your eyes, they're also good for cognitive health. So as we get older, our brain's aging as well. So there are actually some really, really remarkable studies showing their benefit for cognitive function and memory. So where can you get these nutrients, lutein and zeaxanthin? There are many sources. Unfortunately, our bodies can't make them. So we have to get them from outside, either from food or from a supplement. But in terms of foods, leafy greens are probably highest on the list. Spinach, kale, any kind of greens, collard greens, Swiss chard. If you can't have leafy greens for whatever reason, if you're sensitive to oxalates, then there are other great sources as well. So for example, corn, if you choose corn, the non-GMO corn, and then also egg yolk is a great source. You know, that beautiful yellow orange color of the egg is actually from lutein and zeaxanthin. So there, these are yellow pigments. And then you can get them from some fruits like nectarines, peaches, and also zucchini is a great source and even spices like paprika. So there's many, many ways you can get these nutrients. And then if you are worried about it, you know, macular degeneration, if it runs in your family, take a supplement as well. I'm a big, big advocate of taking supplementation for prevention of eye issues going forward. Well, and it's interesting how many of my patients in cardiology that were women that had macular degeneration, and they would talk to me very openly about how much it had impacted their lives. And it's always been kind of tucked in the back of my brain to make sure I'm having these ongoing discussions with my eye provider, largely because I want to do everything I can. And I wonder if our kind of modern day standard American diets are impacting the incidence of macular degeneration as many people are not consuming, I would imagine, a lot of fruits and vegetables. And if they are, it's probably more potatoes and corn than eating these brightly pigmented vegetables. So that's certainly very helpful. And in terms of other things that I know are common to see as we're getting older, like glaucoma and cataracts, you know, are there things that we can do proactively? I know that glaucoma seems to be something, it must be in my age group right now. Glaucoma is, there are lots of husbands who seem to be going on glaucoma drops. They've got intraocular pressures that are elevated. This is why it's important to see 
your ophthalmologist every year and get those eye exams. But do you feel like they're much like with macular degeneration, if you are changing your diet and adjusting your lifestyle, that you can lessen the likelihood that you will go on to develop these eye disorders? Yeah. So in terms of glaucoma, first of all, it's a silent disease. Most people don't know that they have it unless it's a very advanced stage. And the only way to know if you have an earlier stage is to go get it checked out. So please, please, please have your annual eye checkup with your eye doctor and get your pressure checked, get your nerve looked at, because it's not only a pressure problem, the nerve, the optic nerve sustains damage in glaucoma. And the only way to detect it is for someone to look in the back of the eye and see what the nerve looks like. So what causes glaucoma? Well, again, it's a large kind of category of different types of eye diseases. But usually, if you think about the root cause of glaucoma, it's oxidative stress. It's oxidative stress to the various tissues in the eye that are responsible for the optic nerve being healthy. So how can we fight that? We have to have a diet that's rich in antioxidants. And so, you know, for example, again, going back to the richly colored plants, uh, the multi, you know, the rainbow that we should be eating. I think that's really important. Now there have been, to my knowledge, there have been no large scale studies on glaucoma and diet. Unlike macular degeneration, we don't have the studies to prove it. Yet what I did for when I was doing the research for my book is I researched all the literature in terms of the basic science. So, you know, maybe if this is a in vitro study, or maybe it's an animal study, and it hasn't quite made it to the human level yet. But there are plant compounds that can prevent oxidative damage in the optic nerve in the ciliary body, which is also involved in glaucoma. So there are things you can do from a nutritional standpoint to uh, protect those tissues using these antioxidants and also bioflavonoids, things like quercetin, turmeric, and omegas as well. So there's lots of different things, nutrients that you can keep in your wheelhouse that will help you manage these conditions. The other thing is berries. So berries are very powerful. They have anthocyanins that give them their beautiful colors, especially the deeply pigmented berries. So berries have been shown, or at least berry extracts have been shown to help protect the optic nerve and glaucoma, even ginkgo biloba, which we've heard a lot about for memory and cognition, but even ginkgo, there's some studies looking at ginkgo. But what I would say is, you know, how I counsel my patients is, you certainly should start adding on some of these nutritional strategies when you're managing your condition. But ultimately, if your eye doctor tells you that your condition is progressing and they recommend drops, or maybe they recommend a surgery or laser, then I would definitely, you know, take that into consideration as well, because you don't want to be at risk. I mean, you can support your own eye health to a certain level, but if it's already progressed to a different stage, then you should definitely get that treated and prevent further vision loss going forward. Yeah. I think a lot of, you know, what I'm hearing is there are a lot of things that we can do proactively. I think it's important to make sure we're eating this brightly pigmented diet. I think what seems to be really popular right now is either really low carbohydrate diets or carnivore-ish diets, and we're forgetting about the necessity of consuming brightly pigmented fruits and vegetables. And it goes without saying that we're designed to be omnivores. Uh, This is my personal philosophy. We're designed to be omnivores and eat from a variety of different sources. And so I'm glad that you're reaffirming that it's important to be consuming more than just protein. We do need to consume healthy fats. It is important to be consuming fruits and vegetables. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. 
Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experience a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. One of my favorite ways to take care of my health is with appropriate electrolyte replacement. And my favorite brand is Element. We know that proper hydration leads to better sleep, focus, energy, and more. And we know that hydration isn't just about drinking water. Being optimally hydrated is about optimizing your body fluids ratios and electrolytes are a component of proper hydration. Element is formulated with a science-backed electrolyte ratio, which includes sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And with the amount of travel that I do personally and professionally, one of the ways that I stay on track is with electrolyte supplementation while traveling. And we know that in traveling, the atmosphere in planes is kept at 10 to 20% humidity, and dry air dehydrates us much more quickly, pulling more moisture from our skin and breath. This means that those of us that travel with some frequency need to hydrate even more. Properly supplementing electrolytes can help to prevent dehydration headaches, support our energy needs to minimize the effects of jet lag, and decrease the risk of blood clotting on long-haul flights. And Element is offering a free sample pack with any purchase. You want to go to www.drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia. That's drinklmnt.com Cynthia. My personal favorite is orange with a close second of grapefruit, but there's lots of great varieties and the free sample pack allows you to try all of the flavors out from the beauty of your own home. When we're talking about changes to the lens as we're getting older, cataracts, I think many people think, oh, that just happens to grandparents. I have friends who are already developing some degree of cataracts. Are there things that we're doing in our modern day lifestyles that are hastening the development of cataracts or changes to the to our lens that impact our vision? Yeah. So cataract is basically, it's an oxidative stress change in the lens. So normally the lens is clear, it's transparent, like as though you're looking through a clear window. And over time, through oxidative stress, that lens starts to yellow. So it becomes opaque. So that lets in less light, it decreases vision, it makes things blurry, hazy, etc. So why does it happen? Well, again, the root cause is oxidative stress. And what can you do about it? going back to the antioxidants. And also there is another carotenoid that I should mention here when it comes to cataracts, and that's astaxanthin. So astaxanthin is a cousin to the macular carotenoids, lutein zeaxanthin. Astaxanthin is not readily found in our food sources, but it is a marine, it comes from algae. So it's marine based. And so if you eat a lot of fish, 
you may be getting some degree of astaxanthin, probably not enough for eye health, but at least some degree. But um, astaxanthin is believed to be like the king of antioxidants. I would say the queen of antioxidants, but typically you hear the king of antioxidants. It's more powerful than glutathione, more powerful than vitamin A and C and E. So if you're concerned about cataracts, maybe you know, eat a balanced diet with those colorful fruits and vegetables, but maybe take a supplement that has astaxanthin in it and the macular carotenoid. So take something that is going to give you full protection. The other thing with cataracts is light toxicity. So UV light in particular is definitely associated with cataract acceleration and formation. So protect your eyes. Now, I know I get a lot of questions about this, you know, whenever I say, Wear your UV protection, wear those, you know, 100% UVA, UVB blocking glasses. And people say, well, what about my circadian rhythm? Isn't going to, if I block those rays, isn't it going to, you know, throw things off? I'm not going to be able to have healthy sleep patterns. The truth is, even with sunglasses, you're getting in so much stray UV light from the sides. You're getting it through your skin. Your body knows what time it is. There is no way your body will not know what time it is simply by wearing sunglasses. And the downside to not wearing sunglasses is way too risky. You can develop growths on the surface of the eye that are benign or even malignant. There are eye cancers that can develop from too much UV exposure, cataracts, macular degeneration, burns. So for example, I know that there's a practice called sun gazing that is popular amongst many people, but it's very, very risky if you look directly at the sun, because those rays, even in the morning, you know, when the sun's not at, at its zenith, even if it's kind of midway or just rising, those rays still get through the atmosphere. They're still very powerful. They can cause a burn in your retina called solar retinopathy. And once you get that burn, I mean, it's a small, small burn, but that's irreversible. And you may end up with a missing spot in your vision. So why take the risk? So I tell my patients, if you want to sun gaze, what I would recommend doing is do it outside with your eyes closed. And those rays will still get in through your eyelids. They will still help you set your circadian rhythm. You'll still get all those great vitamin D benefits, but you won't be putting your retinas at risk. I love that you brought that up because of course, that was the direction I was hoping to get the conversation going because this whole emphasis on chronorhythms, chronobiology, circadian rhythms, you know, getting sunlight exposure in the morning, you know, for me, I have very light irises. And so for me, I don't tolerate, you know, mid brightest part of the day, I really genuinely need some sun protection. I'm not someone that could stand outside all day long and have no sunglasses on. So I'm grateful to know that I'm still getting some you know, sun exposure, even with those, you know, my prescription lenses, it's certainly very reaffirming. And also to know that for the people that really do want that sun exposure, that they can just keep their eyes shut and they're still getting exposure. It's not as if you have to be standing outside for 20 minutes with your eyes wide open, struggling, squinting, you know, Mm -hmm. suffering in order to get that sunlight exposure. Our bodies are very attuned to grounding and in connection with the earth. Now, when we're talking about the impact of blue light therapy, this is obviously with especially the past three years where we probably have had more connection to devices, tablets, computers, et cetera. Do you set up limits for your patients? Do you have guidance about how much blue light exposure is healthy versus what is detrimental? And I would imagine, because I I would imagine you also see younger people as well, are you seeing changes in eyes at a younger age that you are are surprised to be seeing because of the cumulative net impact of blue light exposure? 
Yeah, it's such an important topic to bring up. So thank you for addressing it. So before the pandemic, there was a study that looked at the average amount of screen time that adults had. And this number is crazy. It was over 10 hours a day before the pandemic. This was published in Scientific American, over 10 hours a day. And for children, it was estimated that children spend about six hours a day on screens. And this is, again, pre-pandemic. So that being said, there are many potential concerns about blue light. One thing I'll just, I just want to bust this myth is that blue light will not ever cause blindness. It won't ever cause permanent damage to your eyes. However, it can cause short-term side effects. And it's the syndrome that we call computer vision syndrome or digital eye strain is the other way uh, it's termed. And so it's a constellation of symptoms that includes trouble focusing, blurry vision, dry eye, sometimes headache, light sensitivity, neck pain, shoulder pain. So this, again, it's an umbrella term that includes all of those symptoms. Some of them are vision related. Some of them are more musculoskeletal. But yes, that exposure to screens and blue light can be linked to all of those types of symptoms. And I've definitely seen, um, especially during the pandemic and now, you know, afterwards, patients really suffering from, you know, they're on screens anywhere from eight to 12 hours a day for both work and personal use. Their kids are on screens for homework, even though they're not home doing school from home anymore, they're still doing a lot of their work on screen. So many patients come in with these symptoms. The good news is that you can really modulate these symptoms. There are so many things you can do not just blue blockers. I know a lot of people immediately think, oh, I have to go get these blue blockers. But there are many other ways that you can protect your eyes against screen time and blue light. So I'll just list what I would consider my top three. So number one, use nutrition. So the macular carotenoids, lutein and zeaxanthin, are your eyes' natural blue blockers and UV blockers. So they're placed, the body absorbs them, deposits them preferentially in the macula, and they sit there, they serve as shields for light. So they neutralize the light coming in. So you can protect your eyes that way. That's number one. Number two, you can use a screen filter. And I'm not talking about the type of screen filter that you put on your screen, not like a physical screen filter. You can use an app that will internally adjust the amount of blue light from your screen. So these apps are very smart. They know, you know, where you are geographically. So they know when the sun is rising, when the sun is setting, and they will adjust your computer monitor's light levels to mirror the sun's natural path through the sky. So it'll be highest in midday, the blue light coming from your screen. And then towards the end of the day, it'll be less and less and less to a point where after sun, like two hours after sunset, there's no blue light coming from or before two hours after sunset, there's no blue light coming from your screen. So there's there's some great ways to protect your eyes against screen time. And then the last way I would say is supplementation. So there are some really powerful studies that have been published, and there's actually two more in press that look at the use of supplementation with, again, lutein, zeaxanthin and astaxanthin of uh, your eyes, you know, powerful carotenoids in terms of helping with eye strain, helping with dry eye, helping with light sensitivity and focus and attention. So I think that those are some great ways to protect against blue light. If you wanted to get blue blockers, I am not opposed to blue blockers. I actually have a whole bunch of my bag of different pairs of glasses that I use. And what I would say is, Use the tint appropriate for the time of day. 
So during the day, if your eyes are really sensitive, you're really strained, use a lighter tint blue blocker. So maybe a light yellow blue blocker, one that almost looks clear. And then as the day goes on, if your eyes are becoming more and more fatigued, sensitive, then use a deeper color. So you may want to switch from that light yellow to a deep amber or even the deepest red. And the way you know that the blue blocker is helping or blocking out with various forms of blue light, you just put them on and you look at a screen and look at something blue on your screen. And if you're wearing a lighter tinted blue blocker or a clear blue blocker, you will still be able to see blue using those blue blockers. So those tints only block anywhere from 10 to 30% of the blue light. The deeper tints will probably block about 98 to 99% of the blue light. And when you put those deeper tints on, if you look at your screen, you won't see blue at all. So that's how you know if your blue blocker is working or how much you can kind of gauge how much it's working for you. So have a couple of pairs and just experiment with them. I think that's the best thing to do. I love all those suggestions. And it's interesting. I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, how much consumption of lutein and zeaxanthin? Obviously, getting your book would be a great resource you know, in terms of screen filters, do you have favorites? Because that will be the next question. Someone will say, what were some of her favorites? Do you have favorites or ones that you find are easiest to use, easiest to install? I mean, apps should be easy to install, right? That's the purpose of an app. But I just thought I would check because inevitably that will be a follow-up question I'll get. Yeah. So there are two available that a lot of people use. One is called iristech.co and one is called flux, f.lux. I actually prefer the iristech.co and I'll tell you why. So both are very sophisticated. Both can adjust the blue light depending on where you are in the world. But Iris Tech has an additional feature. And what it does is it takes out the flickering. And you will notice this right away. So if you download Iris Tech to your phone or tablet, your computer, the only thing you can't download it to is a TV monitor, but any other monitor you can download it to, it'll look different when it's no longer flickering. So if you happen to have migraine and light sensitivity and you're on screens all day, like many of us are, you may want to try that out. And the other benefit of Iris Tech is that there are, as of the last time I checked, there were 27 different settings. So you can adjust, you can play around with it and figure out which one you feel most comfortable with. So for example, they have a healthy setting, they have a sleep setting, they have a movie setting, a gaming setting. So play around with it and see what your eyes feel best with. And then Yeah, just experiment and try it out. I love that. And I'm a huge proponent. I'm very sensitive, especially as we're heading into fall and it gets dark at five o'clock in the afternoon in central Virginia. As soon as the sun goes down, if I have to teach or I'm doing a webinar, I have to wear my blue blockers. It really does. There's something about, I mean, I could be on my phone and it wouldn't be the same impact. If I'm watching TV, which I don't do a lot of, or I'm doing a webinar, if I don't wear those blue blockers, I am wired when I go to bed. There's been so much suppression of melatonin that my body's like, oh, it's not time to go to bed. So I do think that there's a lot of benefit and mine completely distort the blues. So I have to remind myself when I'm looking at things that it's not going to look exactly as it would look without them. Now, try try the screen filter. I think that could really be a great solution. And uh, then you won't have to wear the glasses. (laughs) Yes, I'm excited about that. I'm definitely going to check that out. Before we wrap up today, I would love to kind of touch on the role of things like sleep and stress management and hydration and how they interplay with our vision and our eye health. Because I know with your kind of functional integrative perspective, you're thinking very broadly at all the things that impact eye health. And I think for a lot of people, they think about the value of sleep health for a lot of things, but they may not even actually know that the quality of their sleep can also impact the way that we view the world. 
Yeah. So sleep is so important in terms of just a basic need for our eyes. We need to rest our eyes from constant stimulation from light. That's one thing. But also during sleep, we lubricate our eyes. You know, when our eyelids are closed, they're being nicely lubricated. So there's another role for sleep in terms of that. And there are many actually sleep disorders linked to vision problems. And I just want to touch upon this because I think it's really important for people to realize the connection between something like sleep apnea and vision problems. So as a neuro-ophthalmologist, I take care of patients who've had eye strokes, basically strokes to their optic nerve. And one of the biggest risk factors for a stroke to the optic nerve, now it is rare, it's not very common, but one of the biggest risk factors is obstructive sleep apnea. And so it's important to get that screened if you suspect that you have it, or maybe your partner, you suspect your partner may have it, because if you treat the sleep apnea, you can prevent something like a stroke to the optic nerve, which is irreversible. And then there are numerous other things linked to sleep issues. For example, dry eyes, floppy eyelid. When people sleep, sometimes their eyelid actually flips over and they can get a lot of irritation on the eyelid. They can get wake up with swollen lids. So there are many, many factors linked to healthy sleep, healthy sleep hygiene. Now, in terms of hydration, this is such an important and really underestimated factor in terms of keeping your eyes healthy. So our eyes depend on blood flow and circulation. And the removal of toxins from our retinas, which are highly metabolically active. And the best way to do that is to have adequate hydration. So you're providing, if you're hydrating well, you're improving blood flow from your cardiovascular system, through your cardiovascular system to your eyes. You're giving, you're supplying your eyes with the nutrients they need, but you're also removing a lot of the waste products that are built up underneath the retina. And this goes back to macular degeneration, where it's really a waste product buildup that leads to vision loss. So if you hydrate well, you are helping your whole body, but you're also supporting your eyes in terms of that respect. Yeah, it's really interesting. I have a family member who unfortunately had a retinal occlusion, had a retinal infarct, and then lost 70% of the vision in one eye and 90% in the other. And it was just kind of a catastrophic change. And one of the things that she has been very proactive about is reminding all of us to make sure we're taking care, not only communicating about changes in our vision, but also being very proactive. And that was actually her specialist had recommended that she be more mindful. You know, this is what happens sometimes as we get older, you know, my patients would say to me, I don't want to have to go to the bathroom. It's kind of a hassle. I don't want to drink as much and trying to help them understand that it's not just an inconvenience. There's really a reason to keep our bodies, you know, as optimized as possible. Well, obviously Dr. Rani, that I could talk to you for hours. There's so many different avenues we could go down. I would love for you to let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to be your patient if they're in the New York City area, how to get connected to your books and your other resources that are available. Well, thank you, Cynthia. It's been a pleasure for me as well to chat with you. So the best way to connect with me is through my website, drronniebannock.com. And there you can find my books. So I have the book on nutrition beyond carrots, but I also have another book coming out next year in 2024 on macular degeneration. So that one is called Beyond Leafy Greens. So that should be released soon. And I have courses as well. So if anyone's interested in promoting their eyes, especially as we get older, the course is called Ageless Eyes. So I go through basically all the four challenges many people, specifically women, experience with their eyes as they're getting older and how to manage them and navigate through them and, and come out gracefully on the other end. And then I have a supplement line through my website, and then you can connect me with me as well. And if you're in the New York area, yeah, I would love to see you in my practice. 
would love to help you on your eye health journey. Wonderful. Thank you so much. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 